0: Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm here with Brayden Kowitz. Uh, Braden is the co-founder and head of product at Range. He's the co-author of the New York Times bestselling book, Sprint, How to Solve Big Problems and Test New Ideas in Just Five Days. I guess we just met online, right?
1: Yeah, I think he, am I right in remembering that you signed up for Range and then we started chatting over Intercom back and forth? Uh, Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of amazing that people that I get to meet using Range, it's it's, it's really enjoyable. I'm on on-call duty this week, so I'm answering all the support requests, uh, and it's just been really fun chatting with people.
0: I'm really glad that uh, we connected and that you agreed to do this. I've been looking forward to today's conversation. I was hoping that you could just take a moment to say a few words about who you are and, and what you do.
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I'm a co-founder at a, a company called Range. We make software that helps teams check in with each other so they can feel connected and know what's going on even when you're working from home. Before that, I worked at Google Ventures for about seven years. I was the the first design partner there and built out the the design team where we created design sprints and popularized it across the design world. Before that, I was a designer at Google. I worked on things like on Gmail and Google Docs, Google Trends, Google Enterprise. I was there at a time when it was sort of a Cambrian explosion of of different products, and I had the very, very good luck to be there and, and see a lot of those out the door the first time. And before that I was I actually mostly studied engineering and then did a little bit of HCI in college and that really prepared me for jumping into a really technical job at Google and then at Google I learned a lot about design and working with startups. So now I'm off on my own adventure running a startup and it's been it's been a really wild ride.
0: I have a few questions to ask you about the Google experience. So if you're one of the first designers on the on the G Suite products, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. At first, it was just Gmail for your domain. That's how simple the idea was. It was like, what if you could have Gmail for your domain? And that was the beginning of it. And of course, we needed things like, how do you set up domain settings, and we need a user management console. And so we, we started as a spin-off of Gmail and built all those things, and then eventually it grew into enterprise.
0: What would you say the biggest difference was in uh, design at Google from the, your early days there to what design at Google was like in, the, in your final days?
1: You know, I think I hit the, hit the escape lever pretty pretty early. I was at Google for about five years as a designer before I went to Ventures. And Ventures sort of felt like a sidecar to Google. We were pretty disconnected in all sorts of ways from the rest of Google, which was good for a lot of reasons. You, as a startup, you don't want to take money from a company that you think might be stealing your product ideas or whatever. So it was really good at Google Ventures was, was so disconnected. I think one of the big things that's changed is that at the beginning, I think there was more appetite for chaos that there was a lot particularly in the world of apps so like ads was making money search was powering ads and then apps was like like (laughs) the wild west it was go out and make tools that people want to use for the most part and i think there was a lot of um people just using different frameworks trying different things nothing really had to to work together or fit together particularly well which meant that even though from a user perspective that was challenging from a from like an individual designer perspective, it was really empowering to get to kind of to do things the way that you want or the way that would work for your product. Uh, so, so it was like loss of consistency, but more empowerment. And I, and I think that's why you saw products like um, Reader, for example, that people really, really deeply loved, um, even though they didn't necessarily fit in with the, the broader pattern language of, of Google all the time.
0: What was it like going from the transition from being a designer at Google to Becoming a a design partner at Google Ventures, and like, where did this idea come from? Like, how did you find yourself in that position? Yeah, and could you talk a little bit about what that's like? Because I think a lot of people have questions. You know, you see, you see different venture capital Uh groups sort of spinning up design capabilities in different ways that that uh, venture groups are doing this. But I've never really talked to anyone directly who's a designer in residence in a venture group like that. Yeah. So I was just curious if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, I completely lucked out on the whole thing. I had known some people at Google who, who went over and was on the early team of Google Ventures and I was ready to do something else. I was ready to kind of move on from Google. It was clear to me that the type of like high level product design and strategy that I was interested in doing was not really on the table for designers at that time at Google. So it was time for me to move on. And I talked to the folks at Google Ventures and said, can I help out in any way? And they said, here's, here's like our first five investments, go talk to them. And one was a little ad company. And I looked at their UI and I said, you know, I think it might help you if your links were blue and maybe underlined. And then they called back and like, this guy's a genius. Our click-through rates are through the roof. (laughs) So, So I got the job and that was like the easiest advice I ever gave anyone. And then it was kind of a gradual process, honestly. It was around the time when I think entrepreneurs knew design was important. They had seen Apple and they were like, (laughs) there's something there with the design. Apple is making tons of money. Like the the iPhone has just come out um, and we believe design is important, but we really don't know what design is or like how to get it or how to build the team. And so that was a time when you could sort of engage with entrepreneurs and start to show them what design was they didn't have any anyone. So you could step in and do a little bit of design work and really push their product forward. And then fast forward seven years, you know, we we, we kind of went through a period of doing a little bit of design work to adding research to it. Um, and then eventually really getting into education. And that's really the chapter I think Design Sprints is about is how do you teach companies what design is and how to do it on their own? And eventually as as that became scalable, then it became more about how do you help teams be successful? Because it had gone from like a founder kind of interested in in what design means to, hey, we've got a 20-person design team. How do we continue to recruit for it and organize that team effectively? Very di- different types of questions. Um, and then it also became clear to me that I didn't have that much experience leading large design teams. And it was ready, it was, it was time for a new set of people at Google Ventures to to be able to carry, like pick up the torch and carry it. But back to the the question of like why, why VC firms even have designers sometimes I see the VC industry as it's kind of the spiral so that if you build a good reputation as a VC, then all of the really good companies want to work with you. And then because you're working with the best companies, hopefully you have the best returns on your fund. You're making more and more money. And then that increases your reputation more. And then it's easier for you to get access to the better deals. And so a lot of the... And you'll see this a lot of the ways like Andreessen Horowitz booted up their venture fund. They they did a lot of work right away to get a high reputation. So they have access to those types of deals. So, you know, Google Ventures started and it, even though Google is a big name, in the world of VC, there's lots of reasons why you wouldn't want to take money from a, from a big company like Disney or Comcast or Google. And so we had to overcome a lot of those uh, objections that people would have about working with a, with a big corporate entity. Uh, and so part of that was, how do we quickly build our reputation as a venture fund? There's lots of things we did. One part of that was was to say, we will help you build your business with hands-on help. And a, and a huge part of that was the design team. So my job was to both help the companies, but also to build the reputation of the fund.
0: That's awesome. One of the things that you said earlier, like really uh, rings a bell with me because I've, I've been in the services world for 20 something years, but the services world is very different. Like the way that services groups work with tech companies, you know, design teams or engineering teams at tech companies has changed quite a bit. It's more about like augmentation, building a team, and you may be signing on board for something that looks like doing a thing but then the, there's all the other what's next stuff the stuff that you're talking about like well how do you sort of continuously augment a team's strengths and weaknesses over over many years yeah. how do you how do you how like how do you fill in those gaps how do you build the team and i'm starting to see that a lot of what design is at least for us right now is is that other stuff not just the designing of the thing but like the consulting mm-hmm. and the coaching on design op- operations mm-hmm. and culture
1: yeah, absolutely. I was actually just talking to a friend about the te- the tensions they were having in their company between the marketing team and the product team. And I, I thought to myself, wow, this feels really similar to the tensions that designers and engineers and product managers all have. And if you take these these kind of roles that people have and break them down to the constituent parts, like designer is just just like a very big umbrella. But under that, there's visual design, and and branding, and identity, and copywriting, and user research, and and product strategy, uh, and all sorts of parts that start to overlap with other disciplines in the company. So I think as design is getting more mature as a discipline, we're starting to touch and overlap with things that would otherwise be considered part of product management uh, or project management.
0: There's very few people that I know these days who haven't read the Design Sprint book. Uh, <laughs> Did you expect such a an awesome sort of reaction to that piece like is it to unpack that a little bit? And are you tired of talking about design sprints?
1: No I mean I actually don't don't talk or think about design sprints very much since I left Google Ventures three years ago. So actually I kind of like reflecting on on my time there doing it. No, I don't think we we knew what would happen. We, we had written a series of blog posts about it. They were fairly well received. We, we spent some time talking to publishers and agents, and they, they thought it would be an interesting book given the experiences that we had with, with the companies and the stories that we could tell. And you, you mentioned New York Times bestseller, but the way the New York Times bestseller list works is that there's 10 main ones, and then under those 10 big ones, there's five tiny ones. And if you just make the bottom of that last five, you, you get the sticker on your book. So, so we, that's basically where we came in. Um, so it wasn't like a, a chart-topping success, but it was um, a broader success than, than I think a lot of design books get. And I think part of that was 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 being able to tell those stories about how teams actually do this work.
0: Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's 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 pretty awesome. I mean, some of the most amazing things that I think can happen in a design sprint, like when you follow you know those frameworks, is well, you, number one, you get really great things done. But it's it's really interesting to see what happens on the cultural level. Yeah, uh, I've been in design sprints where you have like remote teams that have been working together for seven years, but. Maybe this is the first time they've gotten together as a team in like a year or two. right? And, you know, see people going from like arguing in the beginning to like giving high fives at the end and all the relationships and trust that's built in doing that stuff. I want to move on uh, past that. I want to talk a little bit about your new thing. Before we do that, I noticed when I was reading about you, I noticed that we have a couple of things in common. <laughs> We're both really big fans, I think, of Iceland. Oh, Yeah. And we were both at Slush Conference 2016. Oh, yeah. which means we probably both know Yuri Ingstrom. Oh yeah, I know. But I'm, I'm Yuri. not, I'm yeah, not yeah. sure.
1: Okay. I think Google acquired his startup and then didn't back it well enough. Um, and it was it was at a moment where it could have been a real strong competitor to Twitter, and it never happened. And so I, I remember talking with him about that whole experience way back in the Web 2.0 days. Uh, yeah, Yuri's great. It was,
0: a uh, yeah, it was, that was Jaiku, I think. Or, yeah. Jaiku, I think, yeah. What What do you, uh, do you go to Iceland often?
1: No, I've only been there once. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's just, it's this weird. Um, well, first of all, the ponies are amazing and the sheep that like run out into the road. Yeah. But it's this weird. Um, yeah, I don't hang out in, in volcanic areas very much. And so just being around places like that feels a bit magical, like something out of a fairy tale book. Um, it really does. And I love hiking, uh, and so it's just, there was just great hiking and outdoors.
0: Well, I'm trying to get one of my best friend is a designer in Iceland. He used to he used to be the head of design at Iceland Airlines, and I've been he and I've been working together to try to create this sort of offsite thing for design people uh-huh. in Iceland. I'm trying to get him to coordinate something. Maybe maybe I'll let you know about that if that ever comes uh, to fruition. Please do. All right, let's talk about range. It's been a bit since we talked about it. So unpack range. Like, like what is range? Like, what does it do for people? How did you come up with this idea? And what are your biggest challenges right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we started thinking about how we make teams more successful. I had seen a lot of startups go, go through growing pains as they grew from just a couple people in a room to a much larger company. Um, and Dan, uh, who I worked with on Gmail, and then he led engineering at Medium, had also experienced what it's like to lead large teams and and some of the challenges that exist there. So we both wanted to you know essentially build a company around supporting teams and helping them be more successful at, at the broad level. And then um, Jennifer Dennard is our is our third co-founder, and she has a, a deep background in organizational psychology. So all of that together gave us this team that could really attack that problem. You know, my experience at Google Ventures has, had been that like whatever problem that you pick up as a founder, you really have to want to do for a long time. Like someone told me once, whoever your customers are, you're going to have to like, you're going to have to get in their head and live in their head to understand what they need out of the product. So it better be a customer, like it better be a head you want to live inside. And so when I thought about like, the communication challenges that teams face, like how people work together and how messy and interesting that is, that's a problem I can work on for a decade and and feel like I've I've learned a ton and helped the world. So it was it was kind of an easy thing to jump into. In terms of, of where range starts, is we we started with the kind of the simple idea of a check in. So most people have heard of, of stand ups. If you've, you're an engineer, if you worked with engineers, you know people get together once a day and and kind of share what they're doing, what they plan to do. But not everyone does stand-ups every day. And so what we we try to do is think about what are all the benefits from stand-ups? And then why don't, don't more people do them? And why do they sort of break down as companies scale? And we, we built kind of our, our first feature set around that. So stand-ups are, are honestly kind of magically great. They help you know what other people are working on. It gives you an opportunity to help other people when they say they're blocked. And it creates this belonging cue where you you continually reaffirm that you're part of a team and continually get to know and see the other people around you. Mm -hmm. And all those things are really, really important. However, It's hard to get on a video call at the same time. It's hard to, you can't be in the same room <laughs> to do a standup. It's, it's sometimes difficult to remember all the things you did yesterday. And as your team grows, you can't go around the room with 20 people. You can't go around the room with a thousand people in a big company. So what we did is move that process online and figured out how to take all the elements so that people get benefit from a standup and put it into an online process. So parts of that are like, we, we realized very early on that people just use so many tools these days. You know, like I opened up Range this morning, we have integration. So I'm like, Oh, yeah, I committed something at GitHub. And I touched that thing on Figma. Oh, and yeah, I left a comment on that Google doc, like the amount of things I did yesterday in different tools is pretty remarkable. And unless there was something like range, I probably wouldn't have remembered I did all that stuff. And I certainly wouldn't have been able to grab all the links and share them with my team in an efficient way. So range just makes it very easy for me to remember what I did, see what I have to do and, and, and make that plan and share it. Then the other big big component of it that we kind of unlocked was that we added a bunch of cultural moments in the product as well these kind of team questions that we ask every day everything from like how's your weekend to you know like what's your communication style or what's a growth edge for you right now and those questions we learned really deep in the habit like they they make it a really good reason to come back every day and share something with your team because you get that belonging cue and that moment to to learn and understand more about the people you work with so it's, it's been kind of magical, and it's been great now that we're even less, like we're not in an office anymore. Um, I'm just kind of really leaning and relying on range to understand what my team is doing day to day.
0: So was range originally built for remote teams or just all teams?
1: You know, it was, it was really for all teams. One of the things we noticed early on is that whenever teams kind of add like a, a point of complexity, they tend to need more more communication cadence, more like we're going to decide how we're going to communicate and run that versus kind of an ad hoc yeah, everyone just talks to everyone whenever they need type process. So those complexity points could come from remote cuz you don't see each other it's much harder. Mm-hmm. It could from, come from company scale. So people at Twitter use range and for them it's just a really big company back when they had an office now now they've i think they're like on the way to go fully remote but back when they had an office it was so big that we would have people on the same team that were on different sides of the building and wouldn't see each other so even that point of complexity can be a big thing but sometimes it's often just like the complexity of the work you know if you have 10 people and you're all working on very closely fitting things, and you really do need to help each other day to day, that complexity also kind of increases at a, a point. Um, or if you're on a cross disciplinary team. So, what we found was that the more kind of points of complexity that a team had, and the more they needed a tool like Range.
0: Okay, I got a few other questions for you. You have a, an objective sort of feature mm-hmm. that you describe as creating transparency and, and objectives. Is this on an organizational level or like on, on project level goal creation and tracking?
1: Well, what we found was that as teams started to scale with range, there became more and more kind of bits of granular work that people were doing. And what they wanted to do was to wrap up that work and see work streams across time. So, you know, today, for example, I was like investigating issues with our website and I was doing some product planning for a new feature we're launching and often you want to you want to pivot on a different way instead of saying show me what braden did or show me what happened today you want to say show me everything that happened to the marketing website i want to know who touched it what files they've done what the planning is like and so uh, to do that we started adding hashtags into range and then it became very clear that those hashtags were really more like Work streams. And those work streams are often very much tied to objectives. So it really came out of this idea of how do we group together the work that's happening in a way that makes it easy to see. And so one of the things we, as we started to look at the market and talk to people who had use like full feature objective tools for their company, they'll, they'll tell you two things. One, that it creates transparency around your org because all your objectives are in the same place. And that's mostly true. If you just take some time and you put your objectives in a Google Doc and you give everyone access to them, like, yeah, it creates transparency. But the other thing that objective tools are typically sold for is that they'll say, you know, as a manager, you're typically wondering, like, what is going on with that project? It's it's like, I know people are working on it, but what are they doing? I really don't have good insight into Mm -hmm. it. And so the hope with objective tools is that if you set up all this tooling, you'll be able to actually see what's going on. And they try to solve that problem from the top down, where they're like, put in these objectives and then kind of nag all your team to put in data into it, which is very hard and very few people do. Instead, we flip that on its edge. And we knew we wanted to get up to a point where we could really create transparency and kind of aggregate meaning for an organization. But in order to do that, we need everyone in the organization to do something and be engaged. And so we knew that we had to start with a product that helps individuals plan their day, help individuals feel connected to their team, but also starts to create value for the managers who are wondering, what is my team doing? I don't want to micromanage, but I, I, I kind of feel like I should know what people are doing all the way up to executives and being able to track, hey, what is happening with the marketing website? What's happening next? Who's working on it? So. We're kind of working at, at objectives from the other direction. How do we make a really, really great experience for individuals, and then eventually build up to, uh, to something that works for the whole organization?
0: Do you have many agencies that are using Range?
1: I don't know. There's a lot of uh, organizations, and I've taken a little bit of a step away from the customer side to focus more on more on product and marketing. So yeah, I don't know offhand.
0: Yeah, I think uh, you know agencies are interested in these kinds of things because, like, for companies like ours, like you know, like we're agencies are different we talked about that earlier so agencies today seem to be more like a bridge between like agency and in-house yeah so we're, we're trying to like adopt cultures and methodologies and tools and tooling that all the different companies and in, in engineering orgs and design orgs we touch are but also like maintain our own culture yeah and our own process and it's kind of it's kind of difficult cuz you could imagine just the the sheer volume of all the different like tools and, and cadences and processes and stuff. And it's been, it's been kind of hard for us to find things that like help us do stuff.
1: Yeah. Do do you have to work with sort of multiple teams at the same time, all using their own sets of tools and cadences and everything, and then communicate out what you're doing?
0: You know, we have a 22 person design team, so we can support something like eight different, you know, up to eight different, uh, you know, accounts. Mm -hmm. And those accounts could be, you know, most of them are very big design or engineering organizations. So, you know, it, it takes a long period of time just to like onboard into their in their environments. And sometimes that means like quite literally like getting computers and yeah. security clearance right. and, tra- you know, sometimes training, but also onboarding into like whatever tooling they're use, And it could be com- a completely different uh, scenario on the other side. So you have like all these different, co- like in our organization, you might have like, you have our culture. And then you have like, you know, the cultures of like six or eight different, mm-hmm. you know, I- enterprise tech groups like orbiting around <laughs> that. This is something that I think about a lot because I believe that if you want to do uh, deep work with people, you need to understand their environment, their methodologies, their their culture and, and work the best with it. But you also have to maintain your own identity, yeah. which is kind of, kind of the tough part, uh, especially now when things are remote, because, you know, when you're when you when you have the benefit of the studio you're you're you know you're around like potentially a bunch of people when you're working from home you might just be like you know you're a consultant and you're working with that one client and mm-hmm. so it the culture seesaw changes mm-hmm. dramatically how do which you s- is like probably probably the like number one number one thing we're trying to solve right now
1: how, yeah how, yeah i'm curious how you're thinking about solving that that the like you're all in the office and you can kind of feel like you're stuck for a moment and and go ask someone for some feedback on something That it strikes me that the friction of that when you're remote is much harder um, to to ping someone on Slack and say hey can you fix your hair and get on a on a video call I have a question (laughs) (laughs) it just seems like a much harder lift than saying like you know hey Ash can you help me with this thing so so how are you yeah how how are you thinking through that
0: well I mean I mean this is still pretty early so I feel like right now what I've kind of been in, in is like research mode right like what are what are the like let's look at the specific things with these teams. Like, is it a team that's just in the Bay area? Is it a team that's like in the Bay area and in Europe Mm -hmm. and how are they working? Like, how is that affecting your team? Like, how can we, you know, but I am noticing that just the sheer fact of working remote has like made a, a big impact on some people. Right. Um, because like, I think there is a perception sometimes that when you're around a bunch of people that you're actually with a group of people and yeah, you can, you can get that insight, uh, or, critique or whatever but without that like unless it unless it is like proactive it's right. missing yes so I've, I've been on the on the line of like trying to figure out like how like should I be trying to create new like introducing new tools and new cadences and new cultural cadences to replicate what we used to have in the studio mm-hmm. or should I let that happen organically I'm worried about some of these things but I don't I don't know, like, you know, honestly, short, short story, this is the first time that I've ever managed a, a team this large. Yeah. And so I don't really, you know, I don't want to be the person that's saying, oh, we're going to like, we're going to do critiques every other day, or we're going to do this or that, you know, right. I don't want to enforce things, but you know, at but some you don't, part also of me, don't want to
1: be a laissez-faire manager who's, who's yeah. you know, you don't want to be di- dictatorial and say, you have to do this thing, but you also don't want to say, well, I'm going to uh, give away all of my authority and say, it's not my job you have to find the middle the middle way. Yeah. I mean one of the things I you know in this broader theme of how do you guide teams well not being directive all the time, I found it helpful to to like to put rules into place temporarily and then back up and then ask the team what that experience was like and use that feedback to to guide. So I've done this a lot in in critique settings where you might notice a critique is uh, meeting typically goes sideways and you could then put some uh, rules into effect you can say look the is going to present for 10 minutes and then we're going to go around the room and every person's going to give one piece of feedback maximum time two minutes or you could say when you're giving feedback you have to first ask a question before you can suggest anything you can put any number of rules into a place and what i find is that people kind of you know, roll their eyes when you when you suggest a rule like that <laughs> but then after you've done it for like a couple times you start to see the power of approaching feedback in that way and then you can kind of remove the rule and talk about what was it like to do that um, and mm-hmm. and what did we learn from that experience so for range you know we've been trying to experiment with those moments of social connection that we have so we, we like tried to do a team lunch or the, we've tried to do like beginning of the day video calls for 10 minutes and some stuff has worked and some stuff hasn't but it, but we were only able to kind of learn what's working by putting something into effect, trying it for a little bit of time, and then yeah. listening and learning from the team about it.
0: Kind of like design, right? Yeah, um.
1: exactly. exactly. I'm, I'm always blown away how much stuff is just like design. When I started writing, I was like, it took me a while to realize that when someone else edits your work, it's just like, it like the design blindness that you have, where you designed it so it makes sense to you. And of course you need someone to, to tell you whether it's good or not that's what editing is. And it took me so long to realize, oh my God, edit, like writing and editing is just like design and design feedback.
0: <laughs> my leadership coach tells me similar stuff. She's like, you know, I, cause I'm, I'm a perfectionist and I, you know, I talk to her about all these big things I'm trying to do and she'll often tell me like, have you ever thought about just telling your leadership team? Like, I don't know if this is the right thing to do, but I think this might be the hypothesis. Yeah. Like, Let's do this. let's try this out for you know a period of time, and if it sucks, we'll do something different like I think sometimes like just thinking like that is easy and also from the from the bottom up, you know i like you know I don't know, I mean, I think like with our group, like most of the things that we will, will end up doing come from other people sort of filtering mm-hmm. you know, we're a small enough company that you know we you know we all know each other really well and stuff like that. I don't know what i I honestly don't know what it's like in a larger company because the largest company that I've that I've ever worked in was Evernote. That's nowhere near like a Twitter or Mm -hmm. a Google or anything like that. So I don't really have any personal experience in a in a massive in a massive org.
1: My guess is the thing that's different about that is not the size of the group, but how much psychological safety that you have. Because if you have to stand up in front of a room full of people and say, I'm not so sure, but it's kind of a half baked idea. I think this is where we want to go. What do you think? And those people just tear you down and tell you like, how, ah, that's a stupid idea. Um, it doesn't matter if there's three people in the room or 20 people in the room. That's really hard with a group like that. So I, I think in order to be like, I'm really influenced by Brene Brown and, and a bunch of the, the work she's done talking about um, how vulnerability leads to trust. And when I get to thinking about what a team is, it's a group of people that helps each other. And in order to help each other, you have to be able to ask for help. In order to ask for help, you have to be able to be vulnerable to each other. So like, it, it all starts with um, feeling safe enough to do that. Um, and, I, and I've been on both big teams and small where I've, I've felt safe and, and, and where I haven't felt safe.
0: So how does, how does range help with that? Like, like, What are some of the things that add up to building the, that, that kind of trust?
1: I think a lot, of, a lot of it goes to the team questions that we added to that daily check-in routine. I wrote most of the first batch of them, and when I did, I got on Google, Google Scholar and I asked, "Ask Google Scholar, how how do people build trust?" And I found these these uh, psychologists that needed to have subjects that trust each other, and then needed to have other subjects that didn't trust each other, and then they needed a protocol for building trust quickly between two two individuals in a way that they could prove. Um, was real, so I was like, "I've had paid dirt. Well, tell me about tell me about this research." And essentially, what they did is they asked two people to uh, ask each other questions that required greater and greater levels of vulnerability to answer. You know, so you, you think like the the biggest question might be like, "What's your greatest fear in life?" or <laughs> or uh, stuff that you can't quite a- ask in the in the workplace. But but starting very simply, so so we we wrote a bunch of questions that covered workplace topics, that covered things like communication style, but then also were kind of modeled after a workout, honestly, where you like start easy and then you ramp up and you have a recovery day. Maybe there's an interval where you work really hard um, and kind of build up that vulnerability over time with your team. And that, that has been a big breakthrough. Like, I mean, people, even on our team, it helps us talk about things that, that otherwise would be hard to talk about.
0: Are these things that are shared with the whole group?
1: Yeah, yeah, there are questions that are shared with the team. They're optional, but most people fill them out, which is which is kind of remarkable.
0: That's interesting. There was a company that was a spin out of Basecamp mm-hmm. that did something similar, but it was I think it was for managers to sort of go top down and ask their people questions. We we tried that. Not not many people did that. Yeah, cuz if, if it I, feels maybe, like maybe it's, it just yeah. It's for
1: your manager or it's some reporting or surveillance mm-hmm. thing. It doesn't it like feels icky. It has to be like, this is what I use to connect with my team. That's why I do it. So I know the people that I'm working with, which gives me value.
0: That thing right there in itself seems like the answer to the, one of the answers to the problems that we have, mm-hmm. you know, because that would happen organically in the studio when people are just like connecting at the coffee machine or, you know, ha- having happy hour, or even if they weren't working on the same stuff, mm-hmm. even during the, this pandemic we've been hiring. And some of these people have no idea, like, The deep history, you know, we have people on our team that've been with us for you know three to seven years. It seems like that something like that would be really awesome.
1: Yeah, I it it was interesting. It it was a feature that people liked so much in Range that early in the early days, we asked, we wondered, is this just our whole product? Should we just ditch everything else and just do these kind of like team bonding things? So we we did a bunch of research and talked to people, and we said, if this was the whole product, would would you use it? And they essentially a lot of them said no. Like um, it would just feel too fluffy, basically just to do like a team bonding thing. And some of them said, like, we tried other products that just did that, but it didn't, it didn't stick with the team. And so I think there is something magical when, when work and culture touch each other in the same space. Like, I mean, that was our takeaway for the product. But now that we've gone remote, and we're trying to build these these moments into our workplace, we're kind of discovering the same thing, even within our company. So for example, we have our our Monday cycle start meeting where we talk about all of our goals and what's happening. And it's very, you know, business, business, business. And then we've got our, you know, Tuesday morning, let's check in for 10 minutes and see each other socially. And it's all kind of fluffy and, and, and fun and, and nice to see the people that you work with, but both of them kind of felt empty. And then, so we started experimenting with doing our work and then taking 10 minutes at the end of the work to like play a video game or something like that. And, and there's something really great about putting the work and the culture and the people in the same space together, I, I don't quite understand why that is, but it seems to be magic.
0: <laughs> that you, you, hearing you say that reminded me of, of my very first job. It was 1999, and um, I had this job, and at a certain time every day, um, everyone would stop work and they would play like 15 minutes of like one of those like shooter games yeah. on like on a hosted server, and people would just like sh- shoot shoot the hell out of each other for a few (laughs) minutes and like get back to work. But it was so, and you know, like and everyone was kind of on the same playing field, like your managers or whatever. Uh And and it was uh, was pretty cool to stop and play a video game.
1: Yeah. We, we played some kind of word game the other day and Dan, Dan and I definitely came in last.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So a couple questions for you. I mean, what do you think that the future of range or what are the things that you think you're going to have to be focusing on now with range given like the current pandemic and uh, is that changing the roadmap at all
1: i don't think it's i mean i think it's affecting how we talk about the product a little bit more that like now that everyone's remote you know we had always been n- knew that for remote teams Range is a really great product now everyone's remote so it makes us lean into that message a little bit stronger um but but no i think that from the core product perspective it, it's, still, it's always been challenging to know what large groups of people are doing and get them aligned and, and working on the same stuff and feeling connected and like they trust each other. So, no, I don't think the, the product roadmap changed a lot because of because of COVID.
0: Outside of work, what are some of your pa- your personal passions?
1: I love backpacking. Um, I just love, there's something about moving over land with your feet <laughs> and carrying everything you have on your back that... Um, it took a while for me to understand my, my dad was really into, into sailing, kind of cruising long, long distances up and down coasts and around the world. And, wow. um, you know, I could never quite get into it in the same passion that he felt. And it took me a while to realize like that, oh, my thing is backpacking. <laughs> uh, it's the thing I really enjoy that helps me, uh, get outside of work and, and, and feel connected to myself. The, the bummer is like I, I, even, even though we're all socially disconnected, I haven't been able to go backpacking because a lot of the, a lot of the parks are shut down at the moment. But I'm very hopeful that some of that'll, that stuff will, will open up and it'll be a hobby that I can do again.
0: Are you an aggressive backpacker or are you someone that a novice could keep up with?
1: I don't know. I, 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 when I go out with people, I think it's important that we all have a good time. That's like the number one goal is that everyone is safe and has a good time. So like within those constraints, I, you know, I've I've done backpacking <laughs> trips with, you know, twelve year olds and and uh, serious athletes and and everyone. Yeah.
0: The idea of backpacking has always sounded pretty awesome to me. I, I don't. I just don't. I don't know. Like I think I've never like up until recently I've never really been interested in the outdoors, mm-hmm. but I think that's changing now.
1: Yeah. Well, the, um, I have to say the equipment is so much better than when I was a kid. It's just remarkable. It is a bit expensive to as a, of a hobby to get into, but you can rent You can rent stuff at REI.
0: The times that I've gone backpacking and camping in the past, I've, I've done it the wrong way, like borrowing a tent from a, a friend and not knowing that it had like holes in it and then it rains at night or whatever. <laughs> and not um, knowing
1: how to set it up because this is your first time yeah. setting it up and it's raining. Yeah, I've been there.
0: But, uh, you know, like... I'm I'm starting to get more interested in the idea of like that now. I mean, I I don't know what maybe it's like 9 weeks of not of not being anywhere outside of my like a like a two block radius.
1: <laughs> like you gives my, you the wanderlust of,
0: <laughs> I want to go. Yeah. What are some of the things that like that keep you up at night? Like things that you obsess about?
1: Yeah, I mean I, I th- lately I've been thinking a lot about the different ways we make our product better. Um, particularly around quality. I mean, I think it's always tough at, as a small company to to keep up, honestly, and and to and to do a lot with a small team. And so, really, staying focused on on quality has been the thing I've been I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah, you know, as a founder, that the thing that's been most challenging to me actually is jumping between different levels of abstraction so quickly, like. Oh no, the this build is broken. Jump down and like look at a bug quickly. Oh, okay. Jump back up and have a strategic discussion about, you know, how we're going to position the company. Okay, jump down to the middle and have like a collaborative session with engineers about a feature that's being built. It is a bit uh, of a whiplash to kind of go between all those levels and stay centered and focused and keep your own energy up well while, while you're doing all that stuff. But overall, I've just been trying to focus on the journey it has been such a wild ride doing a startup and I'm very grateful for all the things I've learned along the way.
0: What are some of those things that you might, that might be worth sharing to other designers that are on the fence or that may be about to embark on creating their own company?
1: Yeah. I mean, the first thing is as a designer, like that will be a very small portion of your job. It's one of these weird things when you start a new thing, like there are so many other skills and things that need to be done. I mean, you know, this is a, as a CEO of a, of an agency, there's, there's finance, there's HR, there's all sorts of elements of it. And because you don't know all those other elements, maybe you're not as great at marketing or, 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 or PR. Like those things will take you longer because you're not as good at them. And your, your design stuff is so good, you can kind of whip through projects very quickly. So those two forces together conspire to make design usually not a huge portion of your job. So when there's moments where, hey, it's time to write a product spec or do some interaction design, I'm like, yes, I'm something I'm like finally good at and know it. Like, I'm ready to dive into this problem. Uh, but the world of starting a company is often learning new things. It's, um, learning new things is often not comfortable, right? You have to be pushed outside of your comfort zone often to learn at a fast pace. And I feel like there's lots of environments that will do that. Startups are definitely one of them.
0: What do you think would be different for you in this company if you hadn't had the experience at working at Google Ventures and, and uh, advising startups?
1: Well, first, I, I don't know if who would have gotten off the ground as easily. It's a tremendous privilege to you know have come from a place like Google, have been in the world of venture capital, have seen how companies pitch, and then be able to use all of that knowledge to go and raise money. Um, it's just a, a tremendous privilege. Uh, so um, I'm very grateful for that. I think the other things that um, I'm, I'm very grateful for is my, my co-founders, Dan and Jen, just know a lot about building team culture and running teams. And so they always seem to be one step ahead of me with wherever our team growth is going or our operations as, as a team, you know, right, right when they suggest something and I think, hmm, that seems like something that we need to do a little bit later in our scale. We do it. And then I'm really thankful about a month later that we did that. So, so I've just learned a ton from them about about leading teams. What what else was would be different? I think, I mean, one of the things I kind of knew in advance, but didn't really didn't really bake into my into the wisdom was how important acquisition is to startups. You know, we had thought about it when we started started our business, and I knew it was important from all my time at G V, but I didn't know how critical it was for a business to build an engine of growth. And that has always been something we've been coming back to and working on. Over the, over the last couple of years.
0: I don't know if this is a, an appropriate question asked, but are you building the business to be acquired like in the long run, or is it something you think you'd want to run for a long time?
1: No, I, I want to run it a long time, and I think you always build a business, business for that. I mean, I, I suppose some people try to do a quick flip, whether that's in real estate or businesses, but it's never been my thing.
0: High five, dude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your superpower?
1: You know, I really like interaction design. Like the, not, not so much the visual design, but uh, here's like a complicated task flow. How do we design it in a way that, that sort of makes sense for people using the pattern language that they have in their head and with all the constraints of the data and the systems around us? That to me always feels like this really interesting Rubik's cube that I can kind of dive into and pick apart. Uh, I really like when I get to do that, that type of stuff. And, and Range has elements of that where the workflow is, is kind of pretty complicated. I think I also tend to be a pretty good communicator of ideas and getting people excited about the things we're building. It was one of the things that when I was at a bigger organization, it became more valuable to be able to run around and get a lot of people excited about an idea. Now we're a small team and I have high status in the team because I'm a co-founder. It's pretty easy to get stuff done. I'm looking forward to a day where I can use that superpower again.
0: (laughs) Any tips on getting people to buy into your ideas? For me, it was always try to make other people think that my ideas were their ideas.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a huge one. When someone comes in and says, "We could do it this way," and that's that's what you've been saying for the past two <laughs> weeks, the correct <laughs> answer is that's a great idea. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. I I think a lot of it is about story and emotion, and picking a medium that allows that emotion to be communicated. So, I mean, so so back at Google when I needed to get people excited about an idea, I would often do a screencast, like the biggest thing was honestly bugs. So you experience some bug with Gmail and you're like, oh, how do I convince an engineer to look into this thing? It's like, it's probably esoteric. They're probably going to say, just clear your cache and reload. And I'm like, yeah, but this isn't a bug that exists. If I hit it, there's probably 10,000 other (laughs) people that hit it. So I would record these screencasts and, you know, this is for bugs, but also for bigger projects. And I would kind of imbue them with the emotions of the moment. Like, hey, I I just signed up for the first time and I'm clicking this thing and, oh, like, this doesn't work. And click, 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 it still doesn't work. What the hell is going on here? And wrap that up and send it as a pug. Or alternately, you know... Be able to tell a story about an onboarding and how really good it would be. Start with the frustration of here's how it works today. And you click this thing and it's unclear. Should you go this way or that way? And it's backed by the data. People often drop off at this step. And you really, really start to build the pain. And then you come back and and use all that emotional skill to tell how much better the solution is. But you have to articulate, here's the problem. And then articulate, oh, wow, it's so much better this way. I, I find it very hard to do that in writing, in specs, in like... Designs that just sit on the shelf. It's much easier to do when you're kind of narrating over it.
0: That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. So it seems like you identify. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm just guessing. We're we're just getting to know each other, yeah. but it seems like it seems like you identify as a designer.
1: Yeah, I, it's it's kind of complicated for me, honestly. Like I, I studied engineering. Um, I still like writing code. Like on the weekends, I'll write code on side projects. I, you know, I write code at work occasionally. But now my job as a co-founder is really much closer to you know, product management and, and kind of leadership of the company. So I'm not really sure. I've kind of like started to let go of that identity quite a bit, honestly. Hmm. And I don't think anything has really taken its place yet in terms of an identity.
0: What did you want to be when you, were, when you were young and you were growing up?
1: I didn't know. You know, I just really liked computers. And then, you know, through that, I got into engineering. And then eventually I, I realized what I liked about computers was making things for other people. And that obviously led me down very quickly into the world of design, because there's lots of stuff in computer science that's not about making other people's lives better. It becomes part of a value chain that eventually makes people's lives better, but it's pretty far removed. So uh, through that, I kind of got closer to working with um, psychologists that were doing experiments to say, like, to understand human perception, and then even closer to the HCI and design worlds.
0: That's awesome. I didn't know that I wanted to be a designer, but I knew I wanted to do like graphic art. Oh, that's cool. But I didn't. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know the difference between des- like art, graphic art, design. Yeah. Did you like art growing up? Oh, I, oh yeah. I mean, um, I w- You know, my dad was an artist. My dad was a. My dad ran a um, freelance commercial um, art. You know, like he did logo design and stuff like that. Never used a computer ever. Did everything by hand. But I was I was heavily influenced by like um, punk rock Xerox poster art mm-hmm. and like um, DVD and game menu design. You know, like the the intro screens, yeah. and like select, selecting character. That's that's kind of where I thought I was going to go. I didn't know that I was going to be like designing software. But
1: that's so amazing. I, I I have always been really intimidated by artists. You know, growing up, I was never a very visual person. And then kind of like stepping into the world of design, uh, you know, working with people that could author in that medium and talk about that medium is very intimidating at first and, and still today. It's so, it's so great that you, you came through that path. One of the things I love about design is all the different paths that people come to it from.
0: Yeah. And just totally like from all over the place. And, you know, back to your point about team is that the more you know about the team, that you're on, the more, the better you can sort of craft your vision for how you're going to work together. Right? right. Like, you know, that someone comes from like an industrial design background or used to do screen printing or something I mean, <laughs> like, um, it, it, I, I think that often some of those things get lost when people don't know each other. But if you, if you know that, like, and it's, it's, you know, sure. Like in a generalist setting, like people could do a lot of different things on their own, but like when you truly know like what you're, team is capable of and you can kind of like create a, uh, you know, a better North star for the team.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah how, how do you do that? Do you, do you have a, I mean, is that, is that just tacit knowledge that spreads around your team that, Hey, this team member is better at industrial design. This person has a background in, in audio design, or do you have some ways to kind of get the shape of people's skill sets and interests and, and share that in a more um, deliberate way?
0: That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, in the early days, and we, we stayed small for a really mm-hmm. long time. And we still have uh, people on our team that had, were our first and first hires. In the early days, when we would interview people, we would all go through the, that process together. Like we would we would meet people. We'd you know do the next step like a coffee or a happy hour or whatever. And we would we would take those things and calculate that. And be like, what would this bring to the team? Right, like, oh, this person used to be a this person used to be uh, an architect. Oh shit. Okay. Well, yeah, that's great. Like, you know, like we can, you know, I don't think that, um, I think that the, the people that have that knowledge right now are just a few people, me, my wife, who's my business partner and maybe our design manager, Ethan, but that could be a really interesting thing just to have for everyone. Right. Like even if it's just like a, a notion page or something that just like shows that, because I don't think that I don't think that everyone understands that. And it could be really interesting, not only like when you're working together with a team, but like when you're exploring other like projects and stuff, I don't know. I never, never thought about that, but that could be really cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We, we have um, like team manual. So like there's a, there's a Braden manual. And if you work with me, you can open it up and learn a little bit about my day, but I, I should probably put more stuff in there about you kind know, of my interests and skill sets and where I feel strong and where I want to grow and stuff that I would like to avoid.
0: You have a, uh, a Brayden manual that your co that your coworkers can access? Yeah,
1: we all wrote a manual on on how we work and how we like to work.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I, I appreciate you making time no worries. today. Do you want to uh, quickly let people know how to follow you or connect with you or learn about Range?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the best thing to do is go to range.co. And you can our blog is there. We talk a lot about teams and culture. And yeah, you can check out the product if you're interested.
0: Thanks, Braden. I enjoyed it.
1: Thanks, thanks so much Cheers. for the conversation. It's a pleasure.
0: See you next time on the podcast. Bye. Hustle is brought to you by FunSize, a digital service and product design agency that works with inspiring teams to uncover opportunities, evolve popular products, bring new businesses to market, and prepare for the future. Learn more at funsize.co. I'm Danielle, a product designer at Funsize. Fun Size, Fun size